Hi, I'm Bob Harrington from Duke University and the Duke Clinical Research Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this editorial discussion on antiplatelet guidelines and international perspective. I have a terrific panel that we're going to spend the uh, next 20 minutes or so talking about this, uh, this subject. First, I'm joined by Keith Fox from Hello. the University of Edinburgh. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, next to Keith, we have uh, two folks from Canada. Uh, Alan Bell, our representative of the broader community of family practice from the University of Toronto. And next to him is my uh, very good friend, Jean-Francois Tanguay from uh, Montreal Heart. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. So we have really three different perspectives. We have four of us, but we're representing three different uh, country or mm -hmm. region-based perspectives on the use of antiplatelet therapy in the guidelines. I represent the American, maybe I won't even say American, I represent the United States perspective. Uh, Keith, you're representing the ESC. Mm -hmm. Alan, you and Jean-Francois are representing Canada because you two chaired the, uh, the Canadian guidelines on the subject. Keith, you've been a long part of the, uh, uh, the European guidelines and I've been engaged with the, uh, the American guidelines over the years. So let's try to cover five topics. First, what I'd like to do is talk about, have each of you talk a little bit about guidelines in Europe, guidelines in Canada, and I'll try to give a brief perspective on guidelines in the state. The second is that we've taken different approaches to the construction of guidelines. And we talked a little bit about this on camera. In Canada, you looked at it as antiplatelet therapy. In Europe and the United States, we looked at it as ACS or stable ischemic heart disease or stroke. We looked at it differently. Mm -hmm. the, the next topic is, are, are our guidelines more different or are they more similar? And we'll come back to that. Uh, what about implementation? And are any of us actually measuring outcomes to understand how we're doing? So let me start with my Canadian colleague, Jean-Francois. The guidelines in Canada, what, what's, the, what's the stimulus to doing this in Canada? Well, under, under the CCS, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, there's several guidelines over the years that have been written. So the stimulus usually is either because there's new data or there's some important change in the disease or in the treatment. So let's say for atrial fibrillation, there's been some new guidelines, peripheral arterial disease. Uh, what we thought is in Canada that there needed to be some outpatient antiplatelet guidelines. So that's why we put a group of experts together, uh, submitted to the CCS, and were approved to write uh, the guidelines that uh, uh, we're discussing so today. So you approached the CCS. The CCS yes, didn't an, an application. You. We can apply. I mean, it's a formal application for guidelines, and it's through the council of the CCS that they select the topic. Okay. Alan, now you bring the perspective of uh, not a subspecialist, but a, a generalist in family medicine. Why, why did you get involved in, uh, with, with the Canadian Cardiology Group? Well, I, I was seeing in, amongst my colleagues a tremendous amount of confusion about antiplatelet therapy, uh, not only in terms of some of the very controversial questions like duration, but some of the more simple things. Who gets aspirin? Who gets clopidogrel? What about these new agents? Um, you know, is, is the management of stroke different from the management of PAD? Uh, what are we trying to prevent with these drugs? And I was just seeing that my colleagues did not understand it. They were not using the drugs as they should, and it's because there were no guidelines for it. And it's not that, that we're not uh, good at what we do. We have clear guidelines on diabetes, on um, uh, the, diseases that the diseases that GIF uh, mentions. But the problem, I think, is that, and I think you're going to get to this, is these are all disease-based guidelines. We thought they needed something that crossed that. We'll come back to that. Keith, from the European perspective, it's interesting that theirs is a bit more grassroots, isn't it? I mean, it yeah. came up from the members 
both you and I are involved with professional organizations where sure. it came down from the society, didn't it? Yes, but there's also a way in which, you know, with the cultural diversity that we've got across all the countries in Europe, if we had different guidelines in each country, it would be a disaster. So the commitment mm -hmm. that we've had is to dispense with the national guideline and adopt the European guideline. And we'll talk about the translation later on. But the idea is for it to be useful to the, the practicing doctor, whether they're a cardiologist or primary care doctor, they need to be able to relate to the individual in front of them and say, how does this guideline apply to Mr. Jones right there or Mrs. Smith right there? And so that's why it follows the patient at different stages in their illness. And certainly from the United States perspective, it, the, the guidelines, I think, as we all know, have been a joint effort between the American College of Cardiology and the American mm -hmm. Heart Association, bringing those two different perspectives mm -hmm. to the table. And in many ways, like you, uh, while in Europe it's different countries, with us it's different states, where the practice mm -hmm. can vary sure. considerably. And sure. so we're trying sure. to bring some, uh, some common recommendations. Let's get to the approach. Alan, you mm -hmm. brought it up. You said, you thought it should be antiplatelet therapy across the diseases. Right. What, what was the thinking there? Well, you know, because unlike other therapies, antiplatelet therapy has sort of very broad implications across diseases, as, as you say, Bob. You know, how is it different in stroke? How is it different in cardiovascular disease? Whereas lipids, you know, I think is sort of a broad application, a little bit different. Uh, um, it was, we thought it was necessary for the creation of a document that anyone could go to when they wanted to know specifically how a therapeutic, how a therapy should be applied in the different situations. Uh, as was mentioned, how can it apply to the specific patient who's sitting mm, in front of you? Mm, mm. Um, somebody's had a recent uh, ACS, somebody's had a recent stroke, somebody comes in with PAD. How do I apply optimal evidence-based antiplatelet therapy to that individual? One document, one place to look. So in many ways, because these diseases are continuums, I mean, you move from an acute ischemic event to chronic stable angina to perhaps peripheral arterial disease. But, but you know, maybe I can challenge that. Okay. Because, you know, if we take diabetes mm -hmm. or if we take peripheral vascular disease, let's say where's the hard evidence for similar outcome changes in efficacy? Say, say take, um, you know, type 1 diabetes yeah. as an example. You know, we need evidence to translate this into practice. And we're not just talking about a commonality of atherogenesis, but the prevalence of plaque rupture. So it's platelet-engaged mechanisms. Which is the why I think both mm -hmm. um, in the United States and in Europe, we've approached it from the patient perspective. But let me, let, mm -hmm. you guys also have a bit of a different methodology around the guidelines. Yes. You broke exactly. into a working group, as I understood it, uh, by disease. Mm -hmm. Exactly, because uh, uh, we had some neurologists, uh, some endocrinologists, uh, some family physician, pharmacists, so we had a group of experts, and again, I had also some Kenyan uh, representation from the CCS, and all this process by chapter were reviewed by the whole committee, submitted as a document to the CCS, reviewed by the guidelines committee of the CCS, then the council of the CCS, so it's a quite long process, uh, it took us like over a year, year and a half to get all this document, approved for the presentation at the CCC uh, in October 2010. Describe the, um, the methodology. Is, is, is it uh, a formal literature search, what weighing of the evidence? How, how, how did you go about it? Well, the first thing we did is we tried to find the top experts uh, in the country on each of the disease areas. So we first had individuals uh, get together and say, well, what do we need recommendations in? So we talked clearly about the, the vascular diseases, but then outside of that special situations like uh, primary prevention, 
diabetes, how do you manage antiplatelet therapy in congestive heart failure. So in all of these areas, we tried to put together individuals. We also looked at drug interactions. So we got some hematologists and clinical pharmacologists involved as well. We let them work together. We provided a full literature search going through uh, PubMed, Embase. Uh, you provided that, that to them? Well, the way we did that is we uh, hired a library service uh, that uh, did a full literature search uh, on our behalf. Um, provided them with all of the necessary information, then offered them, in addition, the option of saying, well, anything that we need, they could turn to them and get further information on. Now, in addition to that, we also did a full search of existing guidelines. <coughs> and we rated all of those guidelines. And we've divided those up. That was also a task that we started out with using the Agree tool. So we put together the guidelines based on uh, the pre-existing guidelines and their measurement according to the Agree tool, subsequent literature published after those guidelines, mm -hmm. and of course, good old expert opinion that has to come in in many areas where we don't have hard evidence, but and, still and need advice. To, I mean, it's, it's not a, in some ways, looking at evidence is dispassionate. That one looks mm -hmm. at the quality of the study, one looks, you know, was it blinded? It was randomization, did it occur properly? But at some level, it's an interpretation of yes. the evidence, isn't it? And that's why you need the experts. Sure, uh, you know, precisely. So once we had all that together, based on what we had, we graded them according to what is, I guess, now an older system. You know, mm -hmm. had we started now, we'd have used grade, but we used a two-tiered system of uh, uh, level and class. And based on that, came up with a graded recommendation. We took those, then we all got together and uh, voted on them. And we had to have a two-thirds majority on the recommendations. We then put them to the CCS, to their executive committee and their guidelines committee that approved it. Pretty and we finally, And we finally have a document. Pretty yeah. rigorous. Yeah. Keith? Well, it's, it's a similar approach. I mean, it's, it's, it's not been uh, in terms of mechanism, mm -hmm. but I think really what we've got to concentrate on is the commonality among the guidelines. We can spend all day talking about minutiae and differences, but what's reassuring is different approaches have come up with, the, with guidance that is remarkably similar. Mm -hmm. We can disagree about some of the minor areas and areas where there isn't evidence. And, and some of those disagreements reflect the different um, cultural context, sure. if you will, in which we all practice. Sure. Sure. So in, in the United States, it may be different than what's being sure. recommended. But you know, in cardiology, we're actually very fortunate. Because we, we, we've got a, we've got a yes. tremendous evidence base. And we have global evidence yeah, we to, do. to a large extent. We do. We yeah. do. So talk about the European process, and one of the, we, I agree, there's a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. The ACCHA also have a rigorous process of looking at the evidence, bringing in the experts, rigorous peer review. Topic that I want to ask you about, Keith, that's really hot right now in the methods of guidelines, relationships with industry. Mm -hmm. uh, the ACC and HA put out a statement that says that uh, currently our, our chair of our writing group cannot have any relevant relationships with the industries being discussed. Um, and 50% plus one. So the majority of members need to uh, have no relevant relationships. Mm -hmm. What's the ESC doing? The, the ESC's position is that, again, there's emphasis on the issue of ensuring that there isn't um, uh, inappropriate relationships. So they're declarations, but there's a balance. And part of this balance is if you end up with guidance um, conducted by people who know nothing about the topic, you may end up with something that doesn't make sense. 
It's, it, this, is, this is a very controversial area, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Jay, if you look well, like you want to get in here. Well, yeah, because it's a, it's a big uh, issue to me, too, because mm -hmm. if you want to have the, the guidelines are credible, I mean, you have to be quite careful that you have at arm's length of industry. Yeah. So we insisted that all the members of the committee that we were at arm's length of industry. And through the CCS policy, we had to declare the yeah, potential yeah, yeah. conflict. Yeah. Obviously, we do research, we do education. I mean, it's not bad to declare what is being done. We don't have that rule that the, the chairs cannot be, uh, in a way, doing some work with the industry. But at the same time, for me, that was a really, uh, you, can try, you can say what I said at the committee, we have to really make that for us, for the patient, for doctors, actually, to, to be used. So really at arm's length of industry the best we could. As was pointed out, if we eliminated everybody in Canada to do any sort of relationship with industry, we would have a committee of non-experts. Well, this, this, is uh, a, this is, I can tell you, though, that this is a controversial area, even mm -hmm. on the, the heart.org in the last week or two. Mm -hmm. There has been mm -hmm. a, uh, a discussion going on about what, who should be the people who cr yeah. construct the guidelines. So one perspective says it shouldn't be the people who produce the evidence. It should be the people who receive the evidence on the back end and who perhaps don't have those relationships and can look at the evidence a bit more dispassionately. Yeah. I mean, in, in some of our countries, we have a two-stage process. You know, we regard the guidelines as exactly that, to yeah. guide practice. Yeah. But then there's another stage in our own country, NICE, the National Institute of yeah. Clinical Excellence. Mm -hmm. Now, they are completely disassociated in terms of people linked with the area. They go through a very rigorous uh, analysis of the data and independent health economics. And it's reassuring that their guidance at the end of the day is remarkably similar. Well, you know, I, I would just like to add that, you know, the first appendix in our document is disclosing any relationships that every member and um, external reviewer has with industry. Uh, secondly, industry had absolutely no input to the creation of the guidelines. Uh, they provided no uh, support. They provided uh, no input at any point. They were completely excluded from any communications uh, regarding, certainly with weren't attending any of our meetings or teleconferences. So I think we'd all, I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing I think is that we'd all agree from representing our different regions of the world mm -hmm. that um, those relationships with industry are important. I mean, on many of the trials that studied, most of the trials that study antiplatelet therapy are going to be but industry Bobby, supported. But if I can push you a bit further, yeah. there have been examples of areas where uh, there have been no experts or, and nobody with any links. And, you it's know, a problem. It can be a problem. It's a problem. So I think we're all in agreement that these yeah. industry relationships are, are important relationships. Mm -hmm. The second is that these relationships have to be managed. Yes. They have to be declared. They have to be managed. Um, we've taken an approach of, uh, of trying to make sure there's uh, a, a certain number of people. But even that is a bit controversial mm -hmm. as to whether or not, you know, are we giving up certain expertise? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about one more area of conflict which I think doesn't get played enough. That's the um, intellectual conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I happen to be the principal investigator mm -hmm. of a trial, what should be, I, I may be the expert, but am I the best person to weigh the evidence? What do you think, JF? And that's a very, very good question because at some point, obviously when you do a trial, you think it's an important question, you invest much time in it, uh, thinking about it. At the same time, you're sometimes the best person to understand all the data and, and the strength and the weakness. So it, uh, I agree with you that it's a really something that you have to be careful. Uh, that means that maybe not all the PIs of all the studies should be on the steering committee for the uh, guidelines, but not to be able to have access to that knowledge, that data, that expertise, I think would be uh, not enough for the guidelines. We would miss something. 
I think the uh, uh, anti-thrombotic trialis collaboration is a good example of what the investigators can do when they put their mind to it. I think producing some of the best evidence that we have from uh, meta-analysis. I think many of the investigators that we see in Cochrane collaboration uh, are the trial investigators. I, 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 to me, you know, I, perhaps people, you know, play, you know, may favor their own trials and their own opinions, but don't we all have our own opinions and biases? And, and you know, well said. But, but, but that's why we rely on a really tough committee. In a tough peer review process. Because if there's somebody who's got a, trying to put forward an idea or a vested interest in a particular intellectual concept, mm -hmm. the rest of the committee's got to stand up and say, hang on. And the peer review process here is critical. Absolutely. You know, certainly in the American guidelines, we rely on what we call broad peer review. Yeah. In fact, we want people who have yeah. relationships, yeah. a variety of relationships, because we want to get all the stakeholders looking at the, uh, at the process. In fact, one of the uh, recent guidelines, uh, literally several thousand comments that we, had to we be We had something like 7,000 comments. For which document? Uh, for, for the last non-STEMI guidelines of ESC. Wow. And, and every one of them had Everyone's to be got reviewed. To be a, uh, yes. Which is part of the rigor that goes into that. And sometimes I think when these appear in the lay press, for example, that rigor is not under, well understood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about guidelines, the methods. We've, I think we're also saying that it's reassuring that our guidelines largely are more similar in their conclusion than different. That's much more similar. They are much more similar, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it really is remarkable when you read across. There's some differences on mm -hmm. dosing of maybe certain drugs, timing of drugs, but we largely agree. Yeah. Let's then go to uh, the last two topics, implementation and the measurement of outcome. Can I put you on the spot, Alan? Implementation in Canada. Okay. So, you know, when it, when it comes to implementation, you know, we're, we're, you know, pretty much on our own, but it's not long until uh, a number of organizations want to come, come and raise this. As we discussed before, uh, you know, there's nothing more useless than a guideline that hasn't been effectively knowledge translated. So, at this point, once we have an effective uh, document and that we are ready to put out, you know, we are willing to accept the help of outside organizations. Now, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society has been extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, they have got uh, three separate initiatives uh, that we're working on, including innovative things that I think reach broad, reach broad masses of people, like um, uh, a smartphone app, you know, where you can just click on your smartphone right in front of you. You know, EMR solutions, uh, in addition to something that we're working on, uh, continuing medical education uh, projects for, for ongoing accreditation. So really taking important. the multimedia approach to different ways that people learn, different ways that people get their information. We've got a number of different CME projects and uh, we're even working um, with one company on a direct-to-consumer uh, knowledge translation process. So where people can ask their physician, if I have this disease, what are my options? And you know websites where uh, consumers can attend and see what are the important uh, issues in antiplatelet therapy and how do they apply to me? In Europe? Uh, yes, I mean from, from an ESC point of view, it's not only producing the guidelines, but then having partnership programs with each of the national societies. So part of the leadership of the ESC in the national societies have joint sessions. But that's not enough because we need local ownership. And what really makes a difference mm -hmm. as to whether a guideline's taken up is local ownership. And that's still a challenging area. And I don't think we've got all the solutions to that. So one of the advantages we've had in the States has been the, uh, the ACCHA registries. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if you look at things um, in the cath lab, for example, the longstanding NCDR, mm -hmm. the ability to measure mm -hmm. what's going on mm -hmm. at a particular place 
and then feeding them back that information has spawned a, uh, a whole new area of CME called performance improvement CME, where we're actually looking at how do people, what are the gaps in their practice based on the evidence, feeding them back personalized programs based on the guidelines, mm -hmm. and then remeasuring it. And that's an advantage, I think, sure. when, when you sure. have some of the, uh, the outcome data from the registries. Any plan, you, you had mentioned EMRs, Alan. Jean-Francois, anything in Canada along those lines? Well, I would say that uh, to measure the outcome at, uh, or the, the, the process, for now we're probably behind. I mean, actually that's great quality that what you're doing in the United States to be able to have that registry database. We have it mostly on local basis where we measure our statistics or mortality morbidity, let's say, at l'Institut Cardiologie de Montréal, and we have all our numbers so we can kind of really update. But for the regional, for other hospitals, that's where we, we What about the outcomes? Because you do report, you do have publicly reported outcomes. You yes. can get your national or your by province statistics. By province, exactly. Have you linked any of that to the learning exercise? No, not, well, uh, on some specific uh, projects, specific disease, yes. Let's say you have a, a needs assessment for uh, antiplatelet endocrine syndrome. So then the CCS makes some uh, survey. We also link into the Ontario database or the Quebec database so we can find out, let's say, primary angioplasty, door to balloon time, you know, things like that are being done on, because the healthcare system is on preventional, preventional mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. in, in, in primary care, uh, particularly in Ontario, as well as in other provinces that I'm, that I'm less familiar with, there are ongoing reimbursement projects that look at performance, as, as we were discussing. So mm -hmm. there are bonuses available to primary care physicians based on what we could refer to as chronic disease management, where certain specific templates have to be completed uh, on a quarterly basis in order to achieve the bonus. So we have them now existing for uh, diabetes and for congestive heart failure. But so far, there is none existing for other very important areas uh, like uh, chronic coronary disease or post-PCI or post uh, but we are trying to push the government to incorporate um, disease management bonuses that follow these important guidelines. Of course, now in government, they all work in silos, and the guys who pay for these initiatives are often not the guys who care that much about the outcomes. But, but realignment, this is a big issue in the states right now, as you know, with healthcare reform, thinking about um, value in the healthcare system and paying for value mm -hmm. as opposed to paying for things that are done to you is an important discussion to have, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm trying to think that we are moving very much in that direction. You know, we, we, we're very proud of our healthcare system in Canada, uh, and we are progressive, and hopefully we'll continue to move in that direction to, again, reward performance and not just visits. Now, some of the challenges that you have, I would think, Keith, is that you have 47, 48 member countries of the ESC, yet a common set of guidelines that get distributed. That's right. That's right. So how do you do that? Well, it's, it's part of the richness of that diversity, and there isn't one solution that's going to fit every country. So does it really we, go down to the country level? Uh, well, it goes down to the country level by, by taking responsibility at the country level at how it's translated out. So there are certain countries where we do have comprehensive programs, okay. like the UK, like Sweden. So we have, we know, at six months, at one year, what proportion of people are still on ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, statins? We know what the outcomes are. Mm -hmm. And it's really gratifying that we're seeing this very marked improvement in outcomes. And are you linking that to the guidelines? So I've been from, as you know, um, good friends with a group in Uppsala who, yeah, uh, yeah. who manages a lot yes, of the, yes. the, their uh, registry data. Are we linking that to uh, the uh, guidelines? Uh, absolutely, and there are th uh, feedback from the MINAP program to the individual hospitals, so you can see the outliers. And feed that back to and them. And feed it back. And give them the education that they yeah. need to yeah. uh, pay attention to the guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Gentlemen, this has been a terrific discussion. We've covered a lot of ground going from the construct of guidelines up to how guidelines are implemented and ultimately outcomes measured. Uh, it is gratifying to hear that, uh, that all regions of the world are pretty committed to this and doing a pretty, pretty good job and a pretty consistent job if you look at the different things we're doing. Ways to go though, don't we? I mean, there's still big gaps. Yeah, I think most the, the most important gap is in getting it down to the masses and ensuring that the work that we are doing to ensure that treatments are evidence-based, getting it out and effectively changing practice uh, where, if I can say, if I can use a cliche, where the rubber hits the road, where the physicians are meeting the patients and following them up on a regular basis to ensure that these measures are being followed through. That's do, the key. Do you know, we know that a whole lot of our treatments are influenced by risk in terms of benefit and risk uh, of, of hazards. This is probably one of the areas that's least applied across our different healthcare systems. But we've got an evidence base, and it's in the guidelines. So, you know, we've got work to do yeah, to apply that. Certainly, if mm -hmm. we think about it, assessing risk and then applying therapy on the basis of that risk is a, is a hallmark of all of our guidelines. And yet, you're right. I mean, there is the risk paradox. There's the risk paradox across all of our healthcare systems. And you know, the other issue that, as we run out of time, we didn't get to is the issue of disparities of care. Mm -hmm. A big issue in the United States in terms of how guidelines and evidence is, uh, is applied. Canada, perhaps mm -hmm. a little less of an issue with a national healthcare system. Yeah. Did you guys talk about that during your guidelines? The issues of disparities of care? No, not, 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 not so much. Uh, we've been looking at that, uh, another group that I work with uh, have been looking at how that may be benefiting cardiovascular patients based on reach registry data. We had 2,000 Canadian patients and uh, uh, we're fairly proud of our outcomes and I think that, uh, you know, uh, I would, I would like to see universal health care applied universally, you know, and uh, yeah, into our neighbors to the south. I good, think you would probably be seeing it. Good, good, good care for all. Not a bad, uh, not a bad goal. Makes sense. Yeah. I want to thank you. There's been a terrific discussion. Um, Jean-Francois, Alan, thank you. Keith, thank, thank you for joining me. And thank you, the listener, for joining us here on the heart.org.